Hello, and welcome to the Playcast. This is a podcast where we talk about historical pandemics to try and get a better idea of what's going on in the world right now. I'm Max, and as always, this is my co-host and sister, Sam. Um, so Sam, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Good. All right. Well, that's good. You're you're hyped. You're you're ready to go because mm-hmm. we are going to talk about um, the Spanish flu or the 1918 flu today. Yes, I've been very excited about this. One. I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, this is this is pretty much the one that it's all been leading up to because this is like this is it's relatively like recent. It's super significant, and it like is not much of an exaggeration to say this is where modern medicine was born. Mm-hmm. And a lot of lessons that we're applying today, or not applying today, like, were learned in 1918. Yeah. So it's super relevant. And I've seen a lot of things on Facebook, like, posts about just, like, poems they wrote at the time. Like, everyone wore a mask and the pictures. And you can, like, compare it directly to today. It's really yeah. cool. It's spooky. Yeah. But it's cool. Yeah, it's kind of eerie. I, it's mm-hmm. just, like, it's a little, it's like that uncanny valley. It's just, like, a little too, like, yeah. similar, but just off in some way yeah yeah it's so yeah it's it's gonna be a really it's gonna be quite a a ride so so i kind of wanted to start this because it's so similar with like a story of kind of my experience in the hospital when covid was kind of coming here so again we're in omaha so we we didn't get hit as hard as like new york or anything um but we saw that happening and we had saw seen um prior to it really coming to the States in like, you know, February, March, um, it hit, hit Italy really hard. Um, and it obviously hit China really hard. Mm -hmm. Um, so kind of with that in mind, I was on my pediatrics rotation my third year. So I was just rotating through the pediatric clinic and we were basically just kind of trying to prepare for an outbreak, which is not something really any of us had like lived experience in. Um, so we were drawing a lot on articles that were coming out at a really rapid pace out of like China and Italy, especially, and trying to figure out not only what are like good treatments, but like what is going to happen. And as, as an aside, I think that's the big reason to study history is basically to predict the future, just Mm -hmm. to have a reasonable prediction of the future, to like observe humans in thousands of different scenarios and then see how they react and have actual data on how they actually reacted, not just theories of how they might. Mm -hmm. So everyone was kind of looking to history. And um, obviously the 1918 pandemic was very, was at the forefront of everyone's mind. And that was a lot of the comparisons we were drawing. So in the hospital, the biggest fear was that our capacity to care for patients would be overwhelmed. We at that point we didn't know how bad this would be, so I was privy to a lot of meetings where, um, you know, like hospital administration and like the infectious disease faculty um, would kind of like would lay out projections of what might happen, what we'd have to do, and um, we had a lot of discussions early on about like really hard things that I had never thought I would ever have to do, like. At what point do you put, like, how, how much do you risk your own family's lives in order to care for patients that you don't know? Or if it gets to a situation where we don't have any PPE, which is personal protective equipment, masks and gowns and goggles and stuff like that, do you still care for patients? Or do you better serve society by hanging back, staying healthy, and then helping when you've got protective equipment? 
And with that, with when you have a certain number of ventilators and very quickly that number is overwhelmed, who doesn't get one? And that was like, that was a very literal discussion we had to have with like, there's been a lot of papers, especially recently of how do you allocate scarce life-saving resources? And some, some scenarios are pretty bad. Like uh, the, the best that we kind of settled on were like, you know, kind of a scoring system that takes into account, like how many like quality life years you potentially have, um, like how severe your condition is, how bad the need is right now. Sometimes it takes into account some like kind of scary things, like how important are you to society? Ugh. Like for instance, healthcare workers mm -hmm. get prioritized because they can care for other people. Right. Um, but then how do you, how do you characterize every other level of say every other function? How do you choose? Jeez. And in some, it's like, okay, you know what? We're going to cut a line. Everyone over 65 doesn't get any life-saving care because we just can't. Mm -hmm. That never happened, obviously. But that was, that was actually an article that came out of Italy when they were being overwhelmed. That was a theory that they were floating. Um, and to my knowledge, I don't know if that actually came to pass, but it was, it was dire enough that they were considering that. So anyway, all this to say that was the mindset at the time. Mm -hmm. And we would be in these meetings where, you know, we would talk like they would have very specific predictions or projections, um, for our hospital system, like from day, however many after community spread begins in our city, this is how many hospitalized patients we might expect. This is how many of this proportion of those patients is what we would expect would need ventilators. And very quickly, we could see that after like, you know, a week or two of like significant sustained community spread in our city, we would run out of ventilators and we would have to make those decisions. And not only that, we'd have to decide, okay, at what point do we pull people off ventilators? So there's kind of an ethical distinction mm -hmm. that some, that is kind of debated actually, but is, is there any moral difference between not giving care when you could and taking away life-saving care? Like at, with, with the knowledge that someone will die very soon after. So it's a very, it was a very, very hard, it was very heavy. Yeah. Um, so all of this together, we saw these dire project projections and they kind of had levels to them, the projections. There was like, okay, if this, if COVID turns out to be relatively mild here, medium, and then severe. And with the severe, we saw just the number of patients who would need ventilator support absolutely dwarf our ventilator capacity. They w would make predictions about how quickly our PPE would run out, how many, what percentage of our hospital staff would be sick, what percentage of those would die. Um, just awful thing like questions of whether or not we would have enough like capacity in the morgue to dispose of the bodies. Like the severe scenario was just catastrophic. It was mm -hmm. middle ages medicine. Yeah. It was, it was battlefield medicine. I remember you and dad talking about that. That was genuinely like a soul crushing part of this. It really yeah. kicked it off. Yeah. That, that's why I care so much about it. Yeah. It was, uh, it was like waiting for a tidal wave to hit and just going in clinic. It's like when the wind stops before a storm. Exactly. It was the calm. And in that moment, so I brought up the projections. The worst case scenario 
the society-crushing, healthcare system-destroying scenario. In every article that was published about it, in every slide that had some kind of figure specific to our city or possible system, there was always a little asterisk. And at, at, then at the bottom of the page or the slide, the asterisk would say, based on projections from the 1918 flu. Oof. Yes. Oof. It is, to this day, our worst case scenario. Golly. Yeah. So let's get into what it was and why it was so bad. All right. I'm less excited now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. So... It's it's pretty dire, but let's let's kind of as as we do, let's talk about um, just some some general facts. So the Spanish flu killed about fifty million people worldwide, which, if you'll remember, is about what the Black Death killed. Middle Ages Black Death. Middle Ages Black Death. Woo! Yeah, but significantly, so the Black Death numbers are based on okay, here's like here's five cities. We know that roughly the proportion of death in this, these cities. Mm-hmm. Let's expand that to the entire population writ large and just take that proportion. That's how you get to 50 million. Mm-hmm. And that's in like seven or eight years, by the way. 50 million in seven or eight years. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you stretch it out centuries or like Plague of Justinian, several centuries, then you get to the big, like the astronomically high numbers. Right. Okay. This was 50 million in less than two years, in like 18 months. Jesus. Yeah. And for a little more perspective, um, just so specifically focusing on America, mm-hmm. think of like the meat grinder of World War One. How many people running into machine gun fire, mm-hmm. the the gas attacks, and then World War Two, the D-Day, the battles in the Pacific, mm-hmm. and forward into like Vietnam, um, like all the wars of the 20th century, all the death, all the just absolute suffering like in terms of American lives, mm-hmm. all of that combined was less than the number that died in 18 months of the Spanish flu. Golly. Yeah. So it was bad. It was bad, 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 bad. And you couldn't even see what was killing you. Yeah. Yeah. That's with with war, scary. at least it made sense. Yeah. You could yeah. see someone's face, but flus and stuff, that's... Yeah. You could just get it. Yeah. And... Uh, for a little more clarification, this is flu. This is like this. There's nothing it's really special. It's flu. It's a particularly bad strain, but it's not like it's a difference of degree, not of kind. Mm-hmm. It's like a little bit worse than normal everyday flu. So there's no like kind of like super mutation or anything like that. Super spreader, any kind of thing like that. It's just flu. It's it's the flu. Run of the mill flu yeah. that happens to be incredibly dangerous. Yeah. So. Historical context. This was um, 1918. The whole world was embroiled in World War One. It was coming towards the close, um, but this was uh, at the point where the U.S. had entered the war, and um, the the outcome was still very much uncertain. So people were countries from truly all over the world were dumping manpower into the battlefields um, to basically determine what the fate of the like entire war would be. Um, and it was again, truly so terrible, this war that people believe that it was the war to end all wars, that this, this war was so terrible that people would realize how 
what a bad idea war was and they would never fight again, which was huh. obviously very wrong. And not only was it wrong, but it wasn't even the like worst thing that happened in like the five <laughs> years around it. <laughs> um, and uh, kind of like with that, so this was also, it was the war changed a lot, but so did medicine. This was the dawn of modern medicine. Um, and as we'll kind of see, there was like, <laughs> like medicine as we know it was basically invented in the two years of the Spanish flu. Yeah. It's like kind of wild. Necessity breeds innovation and all that. Yeah, that's, it's very true. Yeah, that is absolutely right. And that was hundred percent the case with medicine. Um, so a little bit about the disease itself, because I think that's important before we really dive into what medicine could do and what, what all happened. So, uh, this was, this was flu. Like we said, this was H1N1. Mm-hmm. And what that means is, so flu is categorized by, so it's a virus, it's an RNA virus, um, so it's not alive, it's just, it just replicates itself and mm-hmm. causes disease in order to replicate itself. Have we done the distinction between RNA and DNA viruses? Uh, no, and you know, it's... Um, is there a huge distinction? In terms of how it works, yes. In terms of the outcome, not so much. Mm-hmm. Um, so RNA is a little more error-prone then DNA, like when you replicate it, it, mm-hmm. so it tends to mutate more easily and quickly. Right. Um, so that's, that's probably the big difference between RNA and DNA viruses is that RNA viruses mutate quickly. That's why we've got tons of strains of flu. Mm-hmm. That's why we have to get revaccinated every year. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and with it, so the H1 and the N1, so flu is characterized by these surface proteins on the virus. Um, and the two main ones are H and N. H is hemagglutinin, which is the protein that allows um, the virus to bind to cells, sialic acid on like human cells, or bird cells, or pig cells, or whatever, um, and actually get into the cell, and that's where it replicates. Mm-hmm. The N is the neuraminidase, um, and that's basically how the the cell or the the virus cleaves off from the cell and is able to spread. Mm. So those are the big surface proteins on the um, influenza virus. And that's what vaccines are based on, are the H and the N. And so there's a bunch of different types. Like for instance, um, H5N1 is like the big, like that's bird flu. That's what we're really scared of. Like even flu? Yeah. Even mm. above and beyond 1918 flu. You're kidding. Yeah, so we'll maybe get to that at the end. Like it's, God. flu scares me a lot. Oh um, no. But then other flus like, um, like H1N1 was also swine flu. That's what that's yeah. what I was going to say. But there's like so those are big like categories the H and the N. Within that you've got multiple multiple strains, very pretty significant genetic variation again cuz it's an RNA virus that mutates really rapidly. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure once it's in the pigs since it's a zoonotic virus, it'll mutate in there and then mm-hmm. come back different. Yeah. Mhm. Yeah, and it goes across a couple species like like I said, pigs and birds, and I think bats as well, mm-hmm. um, at least, plus humans, obviously. Um, and when it gets into, like, there's multiple flu viruses, some are very specific to pigs, and some are specific to birds, like bird flu. Um, and sometimes they get in the same host, and they mix, and they exchange DNA, and... That's... I hate viruses. Yeah. it's It gets very complicated very fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why it's very hard to treat. Right. So what it does... Um, I assume everyone kind of understands like symptoms of flu or rec- would recognize them. Things like um, cough, respiratory symptoms, cough, um, shortness of breath, 
and high fevers and like chills and what's called myalgias or like sore muscles basically um those are that's like flu-like symptoms Mm -hmm. um when people say stomach flu that's not really that's not really flu so gi symptoms aren't really as common although i think they can happen I'm sure they can. Yeah, I'm sure they can. Um, but that's not, that's not like classic flu. It's an exception, not the rule. Yeah. And then the way flu kills people is there's kind of like, this is a drastic oversimplification, um, but there's basically like two ways. There's like, one is pneumonia. Okay. Right. Which again is very familiar. Um, but there's kind of a couple ways that happens. One is that is just the virus itself causes enough damage to your lungs that you can't breathe. Mm-hmm. And that's pneumonia. Um, and you'll get like other sequelae of that, like your immune system trying to help out and mm-hmm. it just makes it worse. And the other thing is that when you have a viral pneumonia, you're actually much more susceptible to a secondary bacterial pneumonia. And that's really where, like, that's really how most people die, mm-hmm. um, is they'll get like a bacterial pneumonia, um, on top of having like a weakened respiratory system because of the flu mm-hmm. and that'll kill them. Um, and that you can, with bacteria, you can treat that with antibiotics. Um, so that's, we didn't have that at the time. Exactly. Right? Yeah. In oh. fact, um, pneumonia was a very, very significant cause of death, which is not so much anymore, um, because it, they didn't have n- antibiotics and that was a big thing. In fact, um, William Osler, who's like one of the founders of modern medicine, like I read his textbook. Like I, he wrote a, like a handbook on clinical diagnosis that I read Oh my gosh. Uh, for, yeah, for my own training. So, and that's like a hundred years ago, but he once said that pneumonia was the captain of the men of death. Ooh. Yeah. Cause it was just, it killed so many people. That's, that's a good description. Yeah. All, um, on the flip side though, it was, pneumonia was also called the old man's friend because that's just how old people died. And it was actually like. You know, as in, as far as dying goes, it wasn't a bad way to die. Like, you just, like, a lot of the times, not necessarily with Spanish flu, but mm-hmm. um, you just, like, get, like, you get really sick, and then you couldn't breathe very much, and then you just kind of slowly die. And it was, like, like, as opposed to, like, I don't know, other ways that were, like, really miserable, like cancer. Violently losing all of your fluids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, pneumonia was the old man's friend. Flu was not the old man's friend. No. Um, and then the other way that um, the Spanish flu in particular, and actually COVID as well, kills, is something called acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS, ARDS. Um, And what that is, um, is basically, it's your immune system overreacting. It's also called cytokine storm. So basically, the virus gets in and your immune system dumps a ton of cytokines, which are like chemical messengers in the body, um, and tells basically the immune system to like do, like drop everything. We need to do this. And it basically just like kind of like floods your lungs with like neutrophils and fluid and, um, other like pro-inflammatory stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, and because of that, you very quickly, like the, the alveoli, the little air sacs in your lungs, Mm -hmm. like thicken quickly and then you can see that because of like fluid and like mm-hmm. stuff gunk basically um and because of that you can't exchange gases really well and you just mm-hmm. you like no matter how hard you try or to a certain point no matter how hard you ventilate like with the ventilator mm-hmm. um you just you can't exchange enough gas and that's how you die 
and you can die relatively quickly. Um, and the treatment for that is ventilator support and basically time usually, mm-hmm. which of course they didn't have in I 1918. Yeah. yeah. Neither. Yeah. No time or ventilators. Um, interestingly, so antibiotics, ventilators, they come into the story later and almost as a direct result of the Spanish flu, but they don't, they're not there in time. Well, I guess that's good. Yeah. They, they were thinking they like, they figured it out, but it was just, they, they didn't was, have the technology. Yeah. They didn't have the technology at the time. So it was very sad. Um, so with those two together, kind of looking at the Spanish flu, there was kind of this, a trimodal is what it's called. So mm-hmm. there's like three peaks in the death curve. Two that are normal with basically all types of influenza are one that's like under five. So kids, mm. um, kids die in a different way. Kind of, they get like something called bronchiolitis usually, mm-hmm. or they'll get pneumonia or just so, so like different pathology. Um, and then old people over 65. So you're talking about age modality. Yes. Sorry. Yeah. Age okay. modality. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other one that's unique to the Spanish flu among basically most not all flu strains is that there's another very steep peak in the middle mm-hmm. the like 25 to like 40 range and those are the people who died suddenly of ARDS oh jeez yeah and that's what was particularly bad about the spanish flu was that young people that soldier would, age people yeah. were just dying that would be really scary yeah yeah was anyone safe like was like the little valleys were those people just, like, hanging out? Uh, I mean, they weren't, like, they weren't necessarily safe, but, like, if they got it, they still get pretty sick and mm-hmm. potentially die, but they weren't at, like, extreme risk. Like, the the thing about the, the middle peak, the ARDS peak, mm-hmm. was that basically those people's immune systems were really good, really active. Oh. So that's why they theorized, that's why they were prone to overreacting mm-hmm. and dying as a result. They were too prepared. Yeah, too prepared. Yeah. Ugh. Again, all the tools in place, just... Wrong okay. amount, yeah. wrong time. So, we kind of talked about all of this. What could doctors do? So, this, like I said, was the transition point into modern medicine. Mm-hmm. Probably for, mm, like, maybe 20 or 30 years prior to this. This was, like, the dying gasps of what is called heroic medicine. So, that's, like like kind of crazy things like, Mm -hmm. like I'm going to do this, like this has a small chance of working. So I'm going to do everything Mm -hmm. to like save this patient. There was very much like kind of arrogant, uh, Mm -hmm. and on behalf of doctors and like, not so much of like the do no harm philosophy. Um, and it wasn't really based on evidence. So it was like, you know, things like bleeding were still going on. Mm -hmm. Um, Things like like giving people arsenic because they thought that might work mm-hmm. or um, like homeopathy, like things like that. Mm-hmm. Just kind of like not evidence-based, more tradition-based things. And like that had been going on for a long time. And the change came when you started getting things like the advent of germ theory. Mm. So people at the time understood that it was bacteria and viruses that caused disease. And they had, um, you know, a set of rules that they could follow that 
basically to determine what caused disease. Laboratory techniques became very advanced. You had microscopes, you had like ways of culturing different bacteria that we still use today. You, they developed, um, you know, even ways of isolating viruses um, by like basically filtering smaller and smaller things and seeing if like the material that was filtrated um, could still cause the disease in an animal or a person. Um, and they had a very good understanding of anatomy, very good understanding of um, pathophysiology for the most part. They didn't have like an understanding of genetics yet, but that also comes into the story later. So they were like, they weren't like, they didn't know as much as we had do. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have all the technology that we have, but a, you know, uh, like 1918 doctor would be like pretty at home, probably up until like the sixties until like computers like they like different like certainly there's advances in the field like big advances mm-hmm. but like they they had the basics they were in very 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 much modern doctors at the time mm-hmm. um and, as well as nurses and they were very much evidence based like they would they would do studies they would see if this like treatment worked um and they would base their like ongoing things based off of that they were very good at physical diagnosis like i said with osler um and at the time there was like it's kind of like funny, like looking back at this from like a med student perspective, um, like a lot of diseases are named after people who discovered them. Mm-hmm. And like all those people's names are like almost all like it were involved in the 1918 flu. Oh, geez. Yeah. So like the father of modern surgery was there. Um, the father of modern like physical diagnosis, Osler mm-hmm. died of it. Oh, things like um, Oswald Avery would eventually go on to discover DNA as the heritable material. He began that work on with trying to figure out how the Spanish flu was killing people. Um, Alexander Fleming, in exam, like he left a petri dish out when he was studying a bacteria that they thought mm-hmm. might be involved in the like epidemic of the Spanish flu, and as a result, he discovered penicillin. Um, vaccines, they had vaccines. Uh, they had a lot of vaccines, in fact, and they had a, a thing called um, anti-sera, which like an anti-serum, which is which they use very commonly, mm-hmm. um, and it's basically like a straight injection of antibodies. We yeah, so we still like we basically like you've heard of like convalescent serum with like COVID patients. Sure. You wanted like people yeah. want to donate it. Mm-hmm. That's that. Oh my god! They gosh. invented it, and while this was going on, um, we'll maybe talk about this a little later. They like they came up with antisera for like bacteria that were causing pneumonia and they could treat and save people. This was when they did initial studies on gauze masks and whether they worked at preventing infection. And by the end of the outbreak, they had, so they had, um, one of the very, very common bacteria that causes, um, pneumonia, especially after, um, a viral infection is pneumococcus. Um, so they developed a pneumococcal antiserum during, like, during the course of the epidemic and then developed a vaccine before the end of it and were giving it to patients to save lives. They were, like, people working day and night, they were absolutely desperate. And they, again, they had all the tools. They were inventing the tools as they went because they were so desperate to save lives. Um, and also with this, like, they invented public health oh. in, like, two years while this was all happening and they were like learning from mistakes and seeing things that some cities did well and others did not. Um, and it was just, it was a crazy time. Oh my God. Um, 
but kind of with this, there was there was um, elements of this heroic medicine. There was there was an idea that we've learned so much in the last you know twenty thirty years that we are like we're on the cusp of conquering the world. This is kind of a very common perception, not just in medicine, but it was just like like the philosophy of modernism that like humans now or nearly have the capacity to control nature and soon this will not be an issue. And that it very much extended to the like infectious world. And so it was kind of maybe in this hubris, some people probably didn't notice a quote influenza of severe type that was appeared in the weekly journal of public health reports in early 1918. And that's where our story begins. Oh man. Yeah. So this this report came like I said people publish regularly and in fact they published in journals that still exist today. They publish you can go back like cuz like these journals keep logs. Mm-hmm. Uh and you can look like almost exactly 100 years ago in the journals that are publishing about COVID like they're talking about well you know this this may be an effective treatment for the Spanish influenza. And like stuff like that, so it's it's wild. That's freaky. Yeah, it is. So anyway, there there was a report that came out. This was um, in Kansas, Haskell County, Kansas, which is where we think the Spanish flu originated. Um, in America or in general? In America. Well, in, in general, yeah, throughout the, the rest of the world, Man. it probably uh, came from a pig reservoir. So a pig farm in Kansas is where this um, Spanish flu came from, and it just so happens. Um, that this happened like during World War One, so nearby in Haskell County was a um, army camp, a training camp, um, and very quickly they were shipped off to the front. And you know some of them were sick at this time, um, and very quickly they were shipped. The Americans were shipped off to the front. Very quickly the disease spread across all the belligerent nations, um, included on both sides, but. For whatever reason, this wasn't the night. This wasn't the Spanish flu that we fear today. This was like this was flu. It was bad. Um, the the extremes of age still died, mm-hmm. um, but it was flu. It was like it was like a really bad flu season, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of people got sick. Not a ton of people died, but enough people got sick that actually um, Eric von Ludendorff, um, who was the German general at the time, uh, he actually blamed this like outbreak of flu on the failure of his spring offensive. Uh-huh. Like, cause he just didn't have the manpower to keep putting back in the field and everything was slow because of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it like, it made an impact, but it wasn't killing people. So it wasn't like super scary at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, this is where it got its name. So it spread all over Europe and basically everyone who's involved in world war one heavily censored their own press, including the U S but the nations that weren't involved in the fighting notably Spain, they didn't. So they started, they accurately reported um, cases of influenza um, that was, you know, getting a lot of people sick, killing some. Um, So around the world, it was just known as the Spanish flu. Poor Spain. I know. They're totally blamed on it, even though it, like, almost certainly came from the U.S. Sounds about right. Yeah. And, well, <laughs> even it's actually funny. In in Spain, uh, they called it the Naples soldier, the virus. Ooh. Yeah. It's like very like Stephen King-y, like Captain Trips. Um, but so they thought it came from Italy. 
The Spanish did. But, of course, no one listened to the Spanish. They just thought Spain is reporting on it. It must have started there. They're reporting the most cases, even though they're the only ones not lying about it. Um, It must have started there. So that's kind of where it got its name. And it kind of continued in this, like, you know, kind of indolent, like, not super deadly, but very, like, annoying Mm -hmm. kind of flu. Like, pretty severe still. Um, And then, somewhere in France, there's there's kind of a phenomenon called passage, um, where... When you go from one host to the next host to the next host to the next host, it's kind of like a little natural selection. Like, only the most virulent survive. And it happened to go through hundreds, if not thousands, of soldiers, young, all along the front, um, on the Germans and the French and the British and the Americans and all the allied nations. And eventually, somewhere in France, it mutated. It was the perfect storm. It was. It was truly the perfect storm. And with that mutation, um, it spread into every belligerent nation. And when their soldiers got sick to the point where they couldn't fight, they would ship them home in a method that was faster than at any point in history. Trains, automobiles, boats. Boats. Boats? Boats. Not the boats! No! (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, so very quickly, this mutant, hyper-lethal strain of influenza spread all over the world. And that's really where our story in the U.S. begins. So, let's zoom in. So, we'll take us to Boston, which was a major port city where, like, incoming Allied American ships would dock and where soldiers would disembark. Um, Across the Atlantic, on big troop ships, crammed very close together, the virus spread like wildfire. It absolutely ripped and tore through these tight barracks in the ships, um, and many, many died on the voyage across. I mean, sounds a bit familiar. Yeah. Plague of Justinian. Yeah, really. Yeah. And when they got to Boston, obviously it was very easy to tell that there was an infection. And, you know, infections were nothing new. We talked about quarantines in the Black Death. Um, So quickly, the naval authorities, the Navy authorities, um, instituted a quarantine, a strict quarantine over the docks and all the ships incoming with sick individuals. Um, and this was absolutely the right call. Um, it would have been very bad to let them leak into the city unobserved. However, there were so many and the virus spread so easily that we have reports on September 3rd, which is days after the first ship made landfall, Um, of the first civilian being admitted to a hospital with influenza-like symptoms. That was like three days ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Ah! Yeah. Almost almost exactly 100 years ago today. I hate that. I hate that a lot. Yeah. And it gets worse. It gets so much worse. So nearby to Boston, there is another army camp called Camp Devons. And this quickly went from zero, like a a hospital, a camp hospital that was barely occupied, well-staffed, though 
significantly overcrowded in the rest of the camp because people ignored the advice of public health officials. Hmm. This is where the disease exploded. So I want to read you a quote. So this is a doctor at the time and in the camp. Um, And I want you to pay attention to how many common modern medical terms you recognize. Um, And then we'll kind of go into what was happening in the camp. So this is a long quote. Quote, these men start with what appears to be attack of la grippe or influenza. And when brought to the hospital, they very rapidly develop the most vicious type of pneumonia that has ever been seen. Two hours after admission, they have the mahogany spots over the cheekbones. And a few hours later, you can begin to see the cyanosis extending from their ears and spreading all over the face until it is hard to distinguish the colored men from the white. It is only a matter of a few hours until the death comes, and it is simply a struggle for air until they suffocate. It is horrible. One can stand to see one, two, or twenty men die, but to see these poor devils dropping like flies sort of gets on your nerves. We have been averaging about a hundred deaths a day. Pneumonia means, in almost all cases, death. We have lost an outrageous number of nurses and doctors, and the little town of Ayer is a sight. It takes special trains to carry away the dead. For several days, there were no coffins, and the bodies piled up something fierce. It beats any sight they ever had in France after a battle. An extra-long barrack had been vacated for the use of the morgue, and it would make any man sit up and take notice to walk down the long lines of dead soldiers, all dressed and laid out in double rows. Goodbye, old pal. God be with you until we meet again. That makes me want to cry. Yeah. Oh, that's So this horrible. was a very modern doctor trying his best to basically stem the worst infection that had been seen in hundreds of years. Mm. And at the, so he would have had, um, he would probably would have been wearing a cloth mask. He would have understood if you've got pulmonary edema, ways to treat it. Um, he would have been able to listen to heart sounds and diagnose like specific maladies he would have had nurses who were trained in like very modern ways of treating the sick um but even with all of that and even though these were young healthy people about to be shipped off to the front prime of their life they were dying in droves thousands upon thousands of young soldiers died here and at one point so the the US like public health service sent doctors to investigate and by the time they arrived they noted that 35% of the nurses were sick uh, and a lot of them had died. Um, they, similar to in Justinian's time, they're actually, they actually began a practice of tying like toe tags, body tags to living people because they just expected them to eventually die. This was a very modern world. So they would send out telegrams uh, to families um, about their son that had recently died. Um, and then they could, of course, visit or reclaim the body. Oh, no. Um, and very quickly, this became uh, nidus for infection. Oh, my gosh. So this just heated up. This got worse and worse and worse. Um, and the problems of overcrowding, um, the insufficient hospital staff very quickly became overwhelmed. But no one would send help because... Either they were experiencing their own outbreak or they realized that they would need to hold on to every nurse and doctor that they had. So this 
this just kind of continued. It crept along railway lines. Uh, it spread via families coming to visit loved ones. It um, spread in the towns by people just kind of walking around doing normal things. And an interesting thing about influenza, by the way, you can spread it asymptomatically, similar to COVID. Um, so it was very, very hard to contain. And then kind of as, so that was an army example of young men mm -hmm. um, who were hit particularly hard in an overcrowded situation. So not totally a natural situation. No, yeah. But again, on the Eastern seaboard, um, there were a lot of incoming ships. There were a lot of new seeds for infection. There were so many opportunities to spread this disease. So different cities, like, like you mentioned earlier, some were more successful than others. Um, places like, like St. Louis is a great example, or even like, um, San Francisco or, um, New York, they did a really good job of instituting public health measures early. They quarantined the sick, they shut down schools, they stockpiled supplies. Um, they did, they like did social distancing things that you would very clearly recognize from today. But one counterexample stands out because of how poorly they did. And we'll kind of examine the reasons why they did so poorly. So that is Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia was actually kind of, it was, this was kind of the era of political machines. So it was very corrupt political system. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of cronyism. Um, and at this time, uh, the public health director, Wilmer Cruson, I don't remember if he was like necessarily a political crony, um, but he was not very qualified. Um, and he did not like the health of the population at heart. It was more about the health uh, of the machine, the health of the machine, the political machine and the war machine. So because he was so focused on morale, he wanted to keep up Philadelphia's war fighting effort. He refused to stockpile supplies, including masks, anti-sera, um, basic nursing equipment. He refused to ban public meetings because he figured it would spread panic and therefore would be a detrimental to the war effort. He did not close schools again because he thought it would spread panic. He did not impose quarantine on the sick, which was kind of a, that was partially his ineptitude and partially like a morale thing. Mm -hmm. And like with all of this, the, the, like the government and the newspapers were complicit because they were, they all were kind of very much on the same page that, you know, we need to maintain the efficiency of America's war fighting machine. Um, and on top of that, there was something called the Espionage Act, which is the most restrictive, um, basically freedom of speech, like curtailment in American history. Like you, there was a punishment of like 20 years in prison and like significant fines for printing anything like scurrilous or damaging to the war effort or the reputation of the United States, which could be defined as anything. So like communist stuff, um, or even like, you know, there's an epidemic now this is really scary. Maybe we shouldn't send people to the front right now. Maybe we shouldn't send people to camps. Maybe we should cancel the draft. This was all very like, this was taboo topic and punishable by prison time. And it was enforced. So I, I've got a couple quotes here because oh, again, we've got, it's great. A hundred years ago. It's like mm -hmm. our grandma was 
ju- yeah. born just after this. Oh my! Yeah. God, so if you, Grandma. I know her her parents would have experienced this firsthand. Um, book. Yeah, they would have known. They would have like experienced the horror of this. Imagine be, having like a first degree relative or second degree relative in that case mm-hmm. who experienced the Black Death. Like imagine the stories they would tell. So I've got some quotes because, of course, we have the newspaper quotes. Oh, and great. keep in mind that people were trying to prevent panic. And let's take a look at the effect it had. Okay. So this is in Philadelphia. Um, quote, doctors will easily confine this disease to its present limits. And they also reported that, quote, no concern whatever is felt by either the military and naval physicians or by civil authorities. This was early on in the epidemic. We talked about September 3rd, first case in Boston. Mm-hmm. This was around that time. This was, um, this was the, the COVID deniers in that, that world. But, of course, the death toll rose. Hospitals filled. Mm-hmm. Medical systems quickly became overwhelmed. Then, the newspapers, several days later, the newspapers reported... Quote, this disease has about reached its crest. We believe the situation is well in hand. From now on, the disease will decrease. I think this was a quote from Wilma Cruzen. Uh, and of course, it did not. And around this time, um, there was a scheduled parade known as the Liberty Loan Parade. So it's basically a, a fundraising thing for the war effort. You mm-hmm. basically increase patriotism and sell war bonds. Mm-hmm. Cruson refused to cancel the parade, refused to require masks, refused to even moderately encourage social distancing, didn't even inform people of the risks. And within three days of this parade taking place, every single hospital bed in the city was filled and people were sitting in hallways dying of this new disease. Within a few days of this, the newspaper quoted, quote, the peak of the influenza epidemic has been reached, but 300 people died the day after that was printed. Then, several days after that, they quoted, quote, these deaths mark the high watermark in fatalities. But within days after that, the death toll reached 400 a day. And then they reported, quote, don't get frightened or panic stricken over exaggerated reports, end quote. Oh, mm. Yeah. So throughout all of this, they they really just obviously lied to the public because at this entire time, they continued to print obituaries and the obituaries grew into pages and pages until the newspapers were just mostly obits with these blasé headlines telling people not to panic and then the deaths were overblown but they could turn the page and they could see so many of their loved ones so many young people dying and it was just blatantly false what they were printing and by the time that you know the papers actually turned around and were like okay this is this is actually we can't deny how serious this is we're gonna print public health advice by that point no one listened so this kind of goes to show the importance of, like, clear, honest messaging. Mm-hmm. And kind of um, on, the, on the topic of authority people lying or not speaking, um, Woodrow Wilson, the president, never made a public statement about influenza. Um, 
never made any attempt to set priorities, organize resources. Even the Surgeon General <laughs> said almost nothing, and when he did act, he acted to basically con- like encourage continuing the draft and drawing people into these camps. So it's uh, it's it's hard to imagine the the hubris and the stupidity are if you, we weren't experiencing it. Right now, now. I was just, are you sure it's hard yeah. to imagine? And you know, actually, an interesting um, so a couple things that successful st- cities did mm-hmm. in 1918 mm-hmm. was they they staggered um, like work start times. Um, so that people would get on the the tram cars and the subways at different times, so they wouldn't gather. They they did they they closed businesses because and enforced pretty strict like quarantines, like they did shutdowns, and it worked. The cities that did that, it worked. Crazy how that happened. I know, right? Wild. And um, you know, some of the other things they did were like canceling public gatherings, obviously mm-hmm. closing schools, um, and San Francisco. Um, this is kind of an interesting aside and a couple cities across the nation actually enforced mask mandates. They like the city government mandated that people wore masks and the reaction to this was completely what you'd expect. There were, um, even relatively educated people, um, would say things like there's no evidence that masking works, uh, to prevent disease. And at this time they had like Articles in the Journal of the American Medical Association proving that masking was an effective public health intervention. Oh, JAMA. Yeah, JAMA. The thing that our dads published in. Yes. Uh-huh. So, very clear evidence that it worked, um, but people refused to believe it. There were also people that claimed that uh, masking was actually unhealthy because it reduced your oxygen levels. Well, Max, this is just making me angry. Yeah. It's amazing. In a hundred years, people couldn't come up with better reasons. And of course, the big overarching one mm-hmm. was that this is America. This is this is like I have freedom of choice. I shouldn't have to wear this stupid mask. Um, there was also kind of a sexist component, like men didn't wear masks because it was unmanly to be afraid of this disease. So, like, hmm. well, yeah. Sounds... Yeah. Thought? So they died. That was great, and their families died. Um, and then their neighbors died. And their neighbors died. And then the city was inundated in like a flood of death um, that the medical system couldn't cope with because they didn't wear masks. But interestingly, so in San Francisco, there there was a there was a mask mandate with like a five dollar fine, which but is that a, was lot. Kind of a lot. Yeah, yeah, that was a lot then. Um, in response to this, there was an anti mask league that was formed, and it had you know a relatively high number of like participants. Um, and people who were active in it. Uh, and this was, you know, this happened in a couple cities across the nation, but just San Francisco is a good example. Mm-hmm. Um, but within weeks, um, the city council was basically like, this is, you are stupid and your ideas are stupid and we're not going to listen to you. Um, and because, interestingly, the anti-maskers were not affiliated with any larger political movement. They had no staying power and they quickly dissolved. Great. Yeah. So it's become a hot-button political issue now, um, and that's why it's persisted. And that's why it, and that's why it's become, you know, such an intractable issue. When back then it was just like, no, look, obviously the evidence says this, wear a mask. And then that was the end of it, basically. There were people who were grumbling, but that was it. Um, but yeah. At least they could grumble. At least they could grumble. Yeah. Yes. You might Very die. True. Very true. Never grumble again. Um, and... 
you know, since since we've talked about the Black Death and Plague of Justinian, um, one of the big commonalities through all of those was um, how do you deal with the bodies? So they, this was like, a, again, um, similar to how desperate people were to like give their loved ones a proper burial. There's like some horrifying like diary entries um, about like people, like undertakers had coffins that had to be guarded by men with guns. Um, there was a really particularly sad story about a father who was um, begging an undertaker just wait, hold on to the, I'll go home. I'll get a macaroni box. Um, just please let my son be buried in the macaroni box. Um, just anything. And in fact, in a very modern kind of twist to the old plague narrative, um, priests and seminary students actually went out and rented a steam shovel and dug trenches for bodies and would say prayers for the dead and then cover them with dirt from a steam shovel. Yeah. Aww. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And there were, there were also like, you know, kind of social things like they would hang like cloth on doorways. Um, if you had a family member who died of the influenza. So, yeah. And then there was, um, also kind of predictable, uh, reactions people had. So we talked about the anti-maskers. Um, there was also a pretty significant, um, population who believed that this wasn't a natural thing. This was a German biowarfare attack. Um, so I have a, another newspaper article, um, quote, the Hun resorts to unwarranted murder of innocent non-combatants. He is tempted to spread sickness and death through germs, and he has done so in authenticated cases, which of course there were no authenticated cases. There were people who like claim sighting German U-boats off the coast, releasing germs mm. or like, putting people ashore that were sick. Um, and the Hun, by the way, is like what people call Germans. Oh, for, okay. I'm not sure why. Uh, I guess they're kind of like the hordes of Attila the Hun was kind of the narrative. Yeah. So yeah, so there were people, there were conspiracy theories floated that this was a biowarfare attack, which also similar to today. There was also, um, so the we, we talked about how science was basically inventing itself at this, medicine was inventing itself at this time. Mm-hmm. So they had, they had no contact. They had never had an influenza de- epidemic this bad. This was, again, just flu, but they thought it, this is so bad, it must be something else. So they, there was a flurry of scientific activity trying to identify what this pathogen was. Um, they, did, they were able to figure out that in at least some of the cases, it was likely to be a filterable virus. So it was a small, small filterable particles of virus that would go on to infect. So they, they, they knew it was a virus. They knew influenza was a virus. They knew waste, waste tree basically. Um, but there was also a pretty, um, looking back at it, there was actually quite a bit of evidence that it was, um, associated with a bacteria called, um, Haemophilus influenzae. And at the time this was called Pfeiffer's bacillus. So the kind of the, it's, it's one of the cases where, you know, a lot of people who got sick with influenza will also get like secondary bacterial pneumonia. And this bacteria happened to be very common in those samples. Um, so it, it, so people kind of latched onto this as the cause and they tried to make anti-sera. Um, and that was helpful in some cases cause it treated the pneumonia, but it didn't really under address the underlying cause. Um, and this in fact was the, um, bacteria 
that Alexander Fleming was working on. He was researching it. Um, this was later in the 1920s. He continued working, working on it. <clears throat> but he left a Petri dish in the sink and it grew penicillin. Um, and with this, people kind of had to, on limited evidence, had to make quick decisions and make recommendations. Like a, a modern day example, recently research has shown that steroids are actually an effective treatment for COVID. Really? Um, yeah. So that was, um, and that's very, like, you. We, we give steroids for a lot of conditions, especially, especially infectious conditions, kind of boosts the immune system. Um, but the reason we didn't do it at first um, was because we actually had very good evidence that it, in SARS and MERS, which are cousins of COVID, mm-hmm. it actually increased mortality when you use steroids. So we, there, there was a blanket basically um, understanding, don't use steroids. It could kill your patients. Um, but then they did studies and then science like corrected itself and medicine corrected itself and everyone was on board. And that's, that's how science works and how it's supposed to, it's supposed to make, you know, public mistakes, have people point those mistakes out, prove them wrong. And then everyone knows that that was wrong and they go, go to the new thing. But then as now, um, people don't really understand the scientific process and they see that was a mistake. That was a mistake. That was a mistake. They quote unquote lied to us. So people lost a lot of faith in science. And because of that, there was a quote in the New York Times that was like, science has failed to guard us. Um, And because of this, things like homeopathy really took off um, and kind of became ingrained in like the American consciousness. Um, And for a long time, like the school of homeopathy um, actually like put out a lot of doctors um, and put out a lot of medicines that have persisted. Um, And those and they're obviously ineffective. Science has clearly proven them ineffective, mm-hmm. but they persist because people don't trust science. And it's a sim- similar thing with like people who are all about oh natural and blah blah blah. Organic. Organic, yeah, exactly. Same same thing. It's just a it's a it's an attitude rather than actual evidence based way to help people. Um, so anyway, that kind of took off after this. Um, there was kind of a distrust of institutions, um, because, well, rightly so, because they failed to help people. They, they didn't act quick enough. Um, so all of that together was kind of the effect of this pandemic, not only the good, the development of modern medicine, the development of modern public health, um, all, all this information we now have that we kept really good records of that we can apply later on but also this backlash, this persistent distrust of science, um, this backlash against authorities um, that's kind of persisted. And then in previous episodes, we talked about um, these big sweeping changes that happened when we look at it from hundreds of years in the future. Mm-hmm. This one's a little hard to tease out, not only because it happened at the same time as World War One, so that it's tough to tell what's what. Right. Um, but if you if you think about like when we talked about bubonic plague or plague of Justinian, we stretched it out for hundreds of years, and we talked about all the little outbreaks of plague, and all of those added together had an effect. Mm-hmm. If you take that view with like this, you would have to look at like influenza in the twentieth century. What effect that had in hundreds of years? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know. Maybe maybe it's extremely significant. It's probably going to be something unexpected. Um, but in terms of the actual Spanish flu, it's really hard to say what the impact was. What I can say for sure, um, is that there were lessons to be learned 
for future pandemics. Some of them we have held on to and learned, and some of them we have not. And the sad thing about that is that all those people who died, 50 million, you, we could have given them their deaths a purpose. We could have, they could have died and we could have used the knowledge of their deaths and the manner of their deaths to save lives in the future. Um, and I don't want to overstate because in a large way we have. Science has moved forward. Medicine has moved forward tremendously from this event. But in a lot of uncomfortable ways, we did not learn the lessons of the 1918 flu. And going forward, um, we, at the beginning of this episode, we talked about how the 1918 flu was the worst example. That was our worst case scenario and projections about COVID. I want to be very clear. It is not the worst possible example. What? Uh, yeah. There, COVID is bad. It's really bad. And I don't want to like be flippant. But as pandemics go, it's, it's not the, like, the big one that we've been waiting for. There are lessons to be learned from COVID. And part of the reason we're doing this podcast, there are lessons that need to be learned because COVID will not be the only pandemic in our lifetime. It might not even be the worst. In a hundred years, it certainly won't be the worst that will happen. It's the World War One of pandemics. COVID is the World War One of pandemics. And just like in World War One, it's nearly impossible to predict what will happen next. Mm -hmm. But with this uncertainty, there's a lot of potential for bad. Well, Max, thank you. You're welcome. I, I'm <laughs> sad now. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you for joining us on this episode of The Plague Cast. If you like this episode, be sure to check us out on your podcast platform of choice. And as always, wash your hands.